Hello, my rebels, and I hope you're having a good Christmas time. Hopefully, you're having a chance to take a break from a busy year, or maybe you're still on staycation and have been for many months. Either way, it's a pleasure to have you listen to the podcast. Uh, Over the days ahead, we have the best of The Rebel, compilations of some of our favorite videos this past year. I hope you enjoy them. We'll be back with original programming very early in the new year, but I think a lot of these videos you're about to hear today and the next few days um, may well be new to you because they were on our YouTube channel, but they were not on my show, The Ezra LeVan Show. So I hope you enjoy these because I think most of them may be new for you and they're really some of our best work. So without further ado, here are the best of the Rebels shows from 2020. And uh, just in closing, let me invite you to become a Rebel News Plus subscriber. You get the video version of these shows, which and the podcast is great, but seeing the visuals, especially in some of our most dramatic coverage, really makes a difference. Just go to rebelnews.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. As you know, we don't take a dime from Trudeau. So this is how we... Well, we rely on you, frankly. Okay, here's today's show. Tonight, the best of Rebel News' China coverage. It's a year in review. This is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. It's fascinating to watch Hollywood movies and see who the enemy du jour is during the Cold War. Of course, it was the Soviets who were mocked. But by the end of the Cold War, the media sort of turned against America and made Americans the enemy in American movies. Uh, Now, you can't make a movie that criticizes China. Even, for example, the famous film Top Gun would change little symbols that were too critical of communist China. Subtle things. Great books where China was the enemy are rewritten where China's the hero. And Disney, in fact, filmed its latest blockbuster, Mulan, in China. Not just anywhere, but in the province of Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs are in mass concentration camps. Incredibly, in that film, Disney gives a shout-out, a credit, to the secret police in Xinjiang. How things have changed, and I tell you that, to explain why the mainstream media does not properly cover China because they're all seeking to win China's favor to get access to that massive market. Disney is the worst, but every entertainment studio is, every sports franchise is. I can tell you we have no ambitions to get into the China market, which is why we can speak so candidly about China, its dictatorship, the Communist Party there, and the coronavirus that emanated from Wuhan. Tonight, the best of Rebel News' coverage of China. I watch CNN, I watch Fox, I watch CBS, and in this case, there's a lot of things not being said. It almost certainly is a recombination event that that was laboratory-driven.
This is just the essential nature of Chinese communism. Chinese communism is evil. Every person it harms is directly attributable to the Chinese Communist Party. Absolutely riveting, a new documentary released just last night, tracking down the origin of Wuhan coronavirus. You might have recognized one of those folks there, our friend Gordon Chang. Uh, the film was produced and broadcast by Epoch Times, which is a newspaper website, both published in the Chinese language and in English, and it has become my personal source of information for what's really going on in China. There's so much inaccuracies being reported by the Western media, either by accident or because they negligently rebroadcast without skepticism or corroboration propaganda from Chinese state media. The Epoch Times, on the other hand, has dissident sources within communist China, and of course has great journalists outside of them. And I'm delighted to bring you right now an interview with the host, narrator, and lead investigative journalist behind this documentary. He joins us via Skype from Queens, New York, Joshua Phillip of Epoch Times. Joshua, what a pleasure to meet you. Hey, real pleasure being here. Some interesting stuff to talk about. That's for sure. You know, I, I recently came across a study by two scholars, two academics in Wuhan, who published a paper that was then deleted, claiming that the uh, virus was spread in Wuhan, not from a bat in uh, the seafood market, but rather from the virus labs that the Communist Party has in Wuhan. I found that compelling. Your documentary goes a little bit further. Why don't you tell us the thesis of your documentary. And by the way, we've embedded it on our website. People can watch it in full. Go ahead, Joshua. Right. So, of course, we, we all heard the narrative that this virus started in this Wuhan seafood market, this, this wet market. That narrative, that entire narrative is dead. The Chinese Communist Party lied to the world when they told them that. Patient zero, at least the known one, had no connection whatsoever to that seafood market. The Chinese Communist Party itself has stopped using that narrative. And somehow the whole world has just been satisfied, at least at the government level, it seems, has just been satisfied at being lied to with not knowing what the origin was or what the intermediary species was, if there even was one. And so the question is, where did the virus come from? And I think all of us want to know that right now. Now, we, we've all heard tons of information, I think not just me, but I assume everyone watching. You know, we're getting bombarded with information. And so how do you sift through all that? How do you go and track the origin of it? How do you go and track the origin of these uh, different stories coming out? And what do they tell us when you put them all together? That was the goal of this documentary, to basically do a full picture of all the credible information we've seen come out of China on this look at the real information, the stuff that was deleted by the Chinese Communist Party, look at what whistleblowers in China were saying about the real origin of this virus. And yeah, as you mentioned, out of that Wuhan lab itself, 
there were at least two whistleblowers who used their real names and came up publicly and said this virus came from our laboratory. And somehow that never really uh, got much attention outside of China. Yeah. I mean, this Wuhan virus lab has been in the news before. Bizarrely, Canada approved the transfer of the Ebola virus from our research lab to China last year, which is crazy to me. And then there was a startling case of a Chinese national and her students who were frog-marched out of Canada's top virus lab in suspicious circumstances by our mounted police. No charges were ever laid. There was not a full disclosure of what happened. But that Wuhan virus lab has been in the news in Canada. And I have to tell you, when I heard of this Wuhan virus, I thought, what are the odds? What is the sheer statistical likelihood that there was a natural, organic starting of a virus in the same city of this virus lab without the connection? I mean, it's almost, it's, it's almost ridiculous to believe there wasn't an involvement. Tell us a little bit more about your positive evidence that there was a connection. All right, so let, let's look at this. Now that Wuhan lab, the P4 laboratory, is about 20 miles up the street from that marketplace. When the Chinese Communist Party declared that the virus came from the marketplace, what do they do? They go in there and they destroy the evidence. They go and destroy the crime scene. Now, if this was a murder mystery and you had a dead body on the ground and there's blood and there's bullets, they went in, they got rid of the body, they got rid of the blood, they got rid of the bullets, they wiped down all the fingerprints. There's no possible way for the international community, community to go in now and either prove or disprove that narrative. So you're speaking the about the Communist seafood Party market destroyed. itself. Yeah. The Chinese Communist Party destroyed the evidence with that. Right. And so, again, now they, they looked into it. Patient zero had no connection to the marketplace. The question then comes up, well, what was the origin? Well, it just so happens that, that laboratory 20 miles up the road from this place. First off, yeah, they were started to study the SARS virus around 2003, 2002, when they were first announced. The head of that laboratory was one of the top coronavirus, uh, bat, bat coronavirus researchers in the world. She had been writing papers about this, Dr. Xi. She had been writing papers about this going back years. In fact, one of the papers in 2015 described a, it was a synthetic virus that destroyed, it was shown to destroy the lungs of mice that had no known cure. The symptoms of that, the nature of that, very closely fit the description of this current virus we're seeing now. In addition to that, they talked about how to make bat coronaviruses transmittable to humans. That, that laboratory, was on the frontier of this type of research on how do you change the key, right? The key that allows these viruses to connect to human cells. That laboratory was one of the, it, it was the frontier laboratory doing that kind of research. They had the SARS virus, they had these bat coronaviruses. It just so happens now that this new, this new coronavirus, this Wuhan virus or CCP virus as we've been calling it, um, if you look at the actual virus sequence, what does it show us? Well, it has a very close match to, the, to a bat from, uh, I believe it's Nanjing province. Two different parts of it, one's over an 80% match, the other, was, the other is a 100% match to the different proteins. Now that bat coronavirus just so happens to have been submitted to the bat, the uh, coronavirus database by the Chinese military, PLA. In other words, a PLA bat coronavirus is the closest match to this one, at least the virus shell, the outer part of it. Now, what makes 
Now, the, these bat coronaviruses are not naturally transmittable to humans. And so what makes it transmittable? It's those little spike proteins, the little mushroom-looking things coming off the virus. Um, it just so happens that that one, the one circulating now, appears to come from the SARS virus, which is why they're calling it, you know, SARS-like virus, right? And so this bat coronavirus is somehow a recombination, it appears, between this virus that was owned, submitted by the Chinese military to the bat, to this uh, coronavirus uh, database, combined, recombinated, not mutated, it appears, with the SARS virus. So how did the SARS virus join with the bat coronavirus? Just so happens that P4 Laboratory was doing research on this. They wrote papers on this. This is the kind of stuff they were doing there. And the fact of the matter that you know, a, a virus gets out that just perfectly fits the template of exactly what they were publicly saying they were doing at that laboratory spreads globally, um, even fits the description of what people feared would happen if some of the viruses they described got out. Um, and somehow it's, cons it's called conspiracy if you talk about it, at least has been until very recently. I think UK government now and some other countries are seriously looking into the possibility that it might be lab derived. And I think this documentary really shows that. Here, let's take a quick clip from the documentary that discusses exactly this recombination uh, that you're referring to. Here, take a look. After the Wuhan outbreak, Indian researchers compared the S-protein sequence between 2019 NCOV and SARS. They discovered that 2019 NCOV had four new sequences inserted, all of which can be found in HIV sequences through a search on GenBank. Xi Zhengli discredited those observations, although she never denied the existence of the four inserted sequences. However, scientists probing GenBank found that there were only three viruses containing all sequences. The first is the HIV virus itself. The second is a bat coronavirus discovered by Xi. And the third is this new Wuhan coronavirus. Uh, we're talking with Joshua Phillip. He's the narrator of this groundbreaking documentary published by Epoch Times. Um, Joshua, I can understand why the Chinese government would be absolutely terrified of their role in this. It's bad enough that people are dying from a, quote, accident. But if this virus was engineered in their labs, if this was a military weapon that was either purposefully or more likely accidentally released. Um, I mean, at least Chernobyl in the Soviet Union, it didn't explode on purpose. It wasn't designed as a bomb. It just was poorly engineered and there was safety protocols that weren't uh, followed. The cover-up uh, was just to save face, but here it's not even just about saving face. This looks, and you mentioned the People's Liberation Army, this looks like it was a deliberate weaponization of a virus. It could be. Now, when people talk about bioweapons, they, of course, point to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is a signatory in the Bioweapons Act. They have agreed to not develop bioweapons. But even just, I think, 2018, 2019, the State Department had a paper talking about this. The Chinese Communist Party, we knew for a fact they had bioweapons programs going back decades. When they signed onto that program, they never even acknowledged the programs that we knew they had let alone showed any evidence they got rid of those programs. Um, the State Department was calling out the Chinese Communist Party even very recently, publicly, before this whole virus went, uh, came out, about this. 
noting even that a lot of the lab research they have appears to be dual use. In other words, for both civilian purposes and for military purposes, a lot of what they're doing could be used for weaponization. Now, when you're talking about bioweapons programs, let's be clear about this. Countries around the world can talk all they want about how they don't have biowarfare bio programs. You know what they call them? They call them defensive programs. Defensive programs are weapon programs. And so they can run any, any experiments they want to under the guise of defensive programs. And when in reality, they can be used for weaponization. Chinese Communist Party does it. Many developed countries do it. When it comes to the Chinese Communist Party, though, they've actually been very upfront, very public about the nature of their interest in these types of weapons. They have, for example, the unrestricted warfare doctrine. They've had Chinese generals come out and talk about how they need to develop multiple bioweapons for use against the United States specifically. The logic behind that is nuclear weapons, in other words, mass extermination of nations, is mutually assured destruction. It's not applicable, it's not practical if you want to actually destroy another nation. So what do they suggest? They, su they suggest bioweapons. They've talked about this publicly. They've, they've had papers on this publicly. And somehow I think that a lot of the academic, let's say, community, they, t they tend to write off a lot of what these Chinese generals say because it's so extreme, because it's so aggressively hostile and violent and horrific that they have trouble believing it. But the Chinese Communist Party has never tried hiding the fact that it does this never tried hiding the fact that this is part of their military doctrine and military program. And it just so happens, yeah, that now that there is a, appears to be a very destructive virus that may, may have come from a Chinese laboratory, at least the evidence does suggest this, had, uh, may have connections to the Chinese military. We know for a fact that the head of China's biowarfare bio programs took control of this laboratory after this whole thing came out. That laboratory is now under the control of the PLA's uh, top biowarfare person. And also, during the building of the laboratory, a PLA-connected industry took over the construction. Of course, they were working with France earlier on. And when it comes to possible intentional... Sorry, I'm in New York. You'd be, you'd be amazed how many, uh, how many ambulances we have driving around here. But when we talk about uh, possible leaks and possible intention to it, we, we show in the documentary some interesting information. We look into the actual leadership of this laboratory, and guess who we trace it to? The hmm. sons of Jiang Zemin. Huh. Jiang Zemin was two leaders ago. He was one of the he was the head of the Chinese Communist Party two leaders ago. It was Jiang Zemin, uh, Hu Jintao, now Xi Jinping. Jiang Zemin runs a rival faction to the current leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping. His faction is really probably just as bad, if not worse, than Xi's faction. And they've been, you know, at each other's throats. Xi Jinping's whole anti-corruption campaign was purging a lot of people connected to the Jiang faction. Just so happens now this lab is tied to the Jiang faction, hmm. specifically to Jiang Zemin's son. And it just so happens, too, that guess who runs a lot of the medical, medical institutions in China, including the one that controls this... Uh, Western drug that was given to China to treat this virus, this remen, uh, remendisphere, I can't pronounce it, just so happens to be Jiang Zemin's son. In other words, the guy who, who's connected to that laboratory also runs the institutions that control the possible cure for it. Huh. And so, hey, yeah, quick... there, there is a, there's very strong possibility in this. Let's show a there. quick clip of the movie in this regard. Here, take a look.
The Wuhan P4 laboratory was a subsidiary of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is managed by China Academy of Sciences. The director of the laboratory was Yuan Ming, who was also the head of Chinese Academy of Sciences' Wuhan chapter. Design and funding for construction were the responsibilities of the ex-vice presidents of the academy. Jiang Mianheng from 1999 to 2011, and Chen Zhu from 2000 to 2007. Jiang Mianheng was the eldest son of ex-CCP leader Jiang Zemin. After Jiang Zemin ascended to power after the Tiananmen Square massacre, his son entered the academy and led the Institute of High Technology's research and development. Jiang Mianheng created the Shanghai Institute of Life Sciences, and together with China Academy of Sciences, Shanghai Colleges and Universities, Shanghai Hospitals, Military Hospitals and Research Institutions, formed a profit group of life sciences organizations. They controlled China's major life sciences research projects and allocation of massive funding. Jiang Jicheng, son of Jiang Mianheng, is the controlling shareholder of Wuxi Aptech, which in turn is controlling Fosun Pharmaceutical, China's agent for Remdesivir. Effectively, Jiang Jicheng is the kingpin behind the specific medicine for the outbreak. Meanwhile, Chen Zhu is the current president of the Red Cross Society of China, which had faced numerous scandals since the outbreak. We're talking with Joshua Phillip, the host and narrator of this blockbuster documentary. Joshua, um, one of the excuses used by Western political leaders for being unprepared for this virus uh, sounds legitimate enough to me. I mean, Taiwan wasn't fooled. I think they know to distrust anything said by China or the World Health Organization. But other leaders, including here in Canada, said, well, the World Health Organization told us it wasn't that big a risk, it wasn't transmissible. Um, the Chinese government has said only a few thousand people have died out of a mighty country of 1.4 billion. What do you think the actual death count in China is? Because I find it hard to believe that it was as low as they say. I find it hard to credit them when they say there are no more domestic cases. It's all foreigners coming to China. Using your sources, what do you estimate the real number of Chinese fatalities is? I'd say it's easily in the millions, easily in the millions. Now, so one piece of evidence... A, 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 ter a terrible backfire in their own country. Like I, I mentioned Chernobyl before, the death count from Chernobyl was nowhere this high. Um, I mean, it was a great disruption, great economic disruption. It was a great moment of truth for the communist regime. But millions of people did not die from Chernobyl. And yet Gorbachev said it was probably the central factor for the fall of the Soviet Union. Millions dying in China. How would we be able to corroborate that? How would we be able to learn or know that? So Epoch Times, we've been, we've been making a lot of phone calls into China. We also have a lot of sources on the ground in China. Uh, you know, we're blacklisted in China, proudly blacklisted, because that means we're telling the truth about them. And of course, you tell the truth, kick you out. We actually did have an office in China early on. They arrested everyone. Our editor spent 10 years in prison and they tortured him. That's what happens when you tell the truth in China. And so 
when it comes to this, uh, of course, we've made phone calls into some of the funeral homes, into the cremation centers. They said they told us they were working 24-7. And even then, they, they, they did not have the capacity to cremate all the bodies. The Chinese Communist Party brought in mobile incinerators into the city. They said it was for uh, other materials. They didn't say it was for bodies. Um, we know that in Iran, the Iranian government is being accused of covering up the news as well. Uh, there was a report in the Atlantic that estimated the number of infections in Iran could be 2 million. There were other reports showing you can see the mass graves from space. There were so many of them. And Iran right now is calling out the Chinese Communist Party for lying to them about the lethality of this virus. Even Iran, which is a close ally of China, is calling them out for this. Let me when it comes about to the virus itself, I, I saw an early commentator, it was speculation, but I want to bounce it off you, who was looking at the demographics of who dies from this virus, and it's typically older men. And there may be some other demographic or ethnic uh, characteristics to it. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, and a theory that was bruited, again, this was pure speculation, was that China itself might have a diabolical idea of culling its uh, non-productive senior citizens from the country. I mean, I thought that was uh, an outlandish thing when I heard it, that China would actually want this virus to, to euthanize its old and unproductive population. I don't think there was any basis for that other than observation of who the, this virus kills. Um, do you think there's anything special about how this virus works that was deliberate? Like, or was this just a pure attempt to weaponize a virus and, it, and its manifestations are just random? It's possible. Um, I, I wouldn't put it beyond the Chinese Communist Party, let's put it that way. Uh, when you're talking about targeting with bioweapons, development of bioweapons, they, they can do that. Um, that's one of the reasons why biometrics can be such an issue. You can target uh, you can target viruses in terms of bioweapons at specific, say, uh, races, specific traits of genes. If you remember, the U.S. military actually warned, there was a warning going out to U.S. military uh, personnel to not use these different uh, genealogy programs because the genealogy um, analysis of uh, DNA is being sent to these Chinese labs. Now, why would the military warn personnel to not do these things because the, because the DNA is being processed in China? I mean, you, you know, it's, who knows? Speculation. But that came out, I think, last year. And so, I mean, yeah, you can, you can do that type of work. You can uh, alter a virus to target uh, specific types of DNA, specific types of individuals, even races. You can do that. So you're um, saying that 23andMe... Like when people take a sample of their saliva and send it to 23andMe or, or others like it, that those are actually processed in China? I can't remember off the top of my head exactly which companies, but yes, a lot of them do process DNA in China. Allegedly, when they do it, they don't include the name of the individual. But uh, yes, a lot of them process it in Chinese labs. Yeah, that's shocking. Well, how is this going to end? I mean, will it ever end? Uh, I guess there's two parts to that question. One is the health question, but the other is politically. I mean, we saw yesterday Donald Trump musing about getting out of the World Health Organization. I think that's very healthy. I see Taiwan 
uh, has come out of this looking responsible and public-minded, and I, I really like how Taiwan is, is looking and how they're behaving. So I see some hope, but uh, if China did misbehave in the way that your documentary suggests, do you see a larger uh, realignment, a, a disconnect, a disconnecting of industry and security from China, uh, a, a marginalization and maybe even a pariah status of China akin to South Africa during apartheid era? Do you see the denormalization of China or is their financial clout and military clout just too powerful? I think we're already seeing this happening, that the United States appears to be pulling out a lot of companies from China. Companies are pulling out themselves from China because really they can't manufacture there right now. Uh, they're realizing now that China is a national security threat on many, many fronts. The Chinese Communist Party is hostile towards the West, towards the United States especially, that it, that it will hold um, medical equipment essentially ransom unless foreign countries want to cooperate with it. France right now, for example, China is only saying they'll give them masks if they, if they agree to install 5G from Huawei. And so, yes, the Chinese Communist Party is in a very bad state. And yes, Taiwan is in a very good state because Taiwan used to be recognized as, if, as the official government of China. They were the government in exile. The UN was the first to recognize the Chinese Communist Party as the government of China. The U.S. unfortunately followed that. The Chinese Communist Party is a murderous regime. It is under Mao Zedong alone killed between 50 million and 70 million Chinese people. Uh, it is continuing to do these kinds of abuses. It's abuses against democracy activists, against, uh, say, people who are critical of the regime, people who even spread online, you know, rumors, as they call them, information about viruses like this, like they do with these doctors, citizen journalists, yeah, people who believe in religion whether it be Muslims or Christians, Falun Gong or Tibetan Buddhists, brutally persecuted in China. I think the world needs to realize what the Chinese Communist Party is. It is not a, it is not a system that is in any way friendly to us, and it is one that is, that is extremely abusive to the Chinese people. And I believe this is exposing that in a way that, I mean, I never saw it coming. I think everybody's starting to see now the nature of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, this is riveting. I want to tell our viewers that we will have a link to the full documentary below this video, and we've embedded it on our website as well. Um, Joshua, I admire your work. Uh, tell us um, where people can go to learn more. There's your website, Epoch Times. There's the paper, newspaper, that you publish in English. Um, tell us some of the places people can go if they want to go deeper on this, websites or, or other advice you have for our viewers. You can go to theepochtimes.com, T-H-E-E-P-O-C-H-T-I-M-E-S.com. You can also check out my show. It's Crossroads with Joshua Phillip. You can find us on the Epoch Times homepage or on YouTube. And uh, that's probably the best places for you. Excellent. Well, thank you. Stay safe. This documentary certainly puts you, you were before, but you're definitely on the top 10 bad guys list for communist China. So stay safe because they are desperate now and your documentary only adds to the pressure on them. Congratulations and thank you for coming on our show today. 
And my pleasure. Thank you. All right, there you have it, Joshua Phillip from theepochtimes.com. We'll have the link below this video. Check out the full documentary. It's about 55 minutes, I promise you. You will learn more from that than from anything you've learned in the mainstream media, and you'll recognize friends of the show, including our friend Gordon Chang. Almost 600 days ago, the Chinese dictatorship kidnapped two Canadian citizens, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Justin Trudeau hasn't done anything about it. In fact, he continues to send foreign aid to China, even sending our entire national stockpile of face masks and other personal protective equipment to China for free in the middle of the pandemic. He really is their poodle. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime. The two Michaels weren't captured in a legal arrest. They were held for the first year and a half without even being charged with a crime. They're being held in brutal conditions in a light, in a room where the lights are never turned off. That's a form of torture. They're being denied visits from Canadian diplomats. China has been crystal clear about what they're doing. They're taking hostages. That's not what G20 countries do. That's what terrorists or pirates or criminals do. Communist China is acting like a rogue country, like gangsters. That dictatorship may be producing your high-tech cell phones and computers, but it is still a dictatorship. It still has that 1970s Mao Zedong thuggery in it. They're not even trying to hide it. Chinese dictators repeatedly admit that these two Canadians were seized as a bargaining chip to force the release of an accused Chinese criminal in Canada. Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of the huge Chinese tech company called Huawei, she was arrested in Vancouver and is being extradited to the U.S. to face charges of fraud. Meng, of course, is out on bail. She's living the high life in Vancouver, a wonderful city where she's free to go out and about and has the very best lawyers that her billions can buy. So far, she's lost her first round in court. A fair judge in an independent legal system said that the extradition hearing can proceed. But the Chinese dictators want her sprung out of jail before the trial is even over. It's a tit-for-tat, say the Chinese. It's an admission that the two Michaels didn't do anything wrong. They're just hostages, bargaining chips. So what have we done as a country in response to this barbaric behavior by China? This is hostage-taking, kidnapping. Have we kicked out Chinese diplomats in protest? Have we sent home some of the thousands of children of corrupt Communist Party of China officials who send their kids to attend Canadian universities, taking up spaces otherwise available to Canadian citizens. Have we kicked them out? Have we put any tariffs on Chinese imported goods? Have we even just used our words to condemn them? No, 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 and no. The opposite, actually. We are completely compliant and submissive. Trudeau is even giving more foreign aid to China, including a bizarre financial grant to the Wuhan Virology Lab. I'm not kidding. Is there nothing China can do that Trudeau won't just shrug off? It's humiliating, of course. It's un-Canadian. And most importantly, it's not working. It's not getting the two Michaels back. In fact, the Chinese fake legal system, it's all predetermined by the Communist Party over there. They've ratcheted up the propaganda war, recently charging the two Michaels with spying. It's world news. Here's the BBC story. And yet, still, Trudeau does nothing. No sanctions, no diplomatic expulsions, so nothing. It'll soon be 600 days in prison. So we've got an idea. 
there's a great Canadian human rights law scholar. He used to teach constitutional law, he's been a lawyer, um, and most importantly for our purposes, he championed the case of the Falun Gong, who were persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party. He worked with a member of parliament named David Kilgore to investigate and expose China's horrific practice of forcibly harvesting human organs from live prisoners, including Falun Gong political prisoners. They would cut those organs out of people and sell them to China's Communist Party officials or even foreign buyers. David Matus is the name of the lawyer who exposed that and who told the world. Well, we've asked Professor Matus, who knows about China and Chinese prisons and human rights law in the UN, we asked him what we could possibly do to help the two Michaels. What we could do, I mean, we're not in government, we're just citizens who wish something would be done. Well, Matus had an idea. Here, watch my recent interview with him. Professor, based on your work scrutinizing China, your lifelong dedication to civil rights, and your interest in Canadian politics, uh, our mutual friend, our lawyer, Aaron Rosenberg, reached out to you to discuss how we could perhaps work with you on the troubling case of the two Michaels, Michael Koverig and Michael Spavor, who have been in illegal detention in China for a year and a half. Can you explain to our viewers what legal steps you think we can take given that we don't have standing as the family or the two men, given that we're not the government of Canada, and given that China is in some ways a rogue state, what could we do legally about what is really a hostage-taking? The, uh, the opportunities for dealing legally with uh, Chinese uh, violations of international human rights standards is relatively limited because China is not a signatory to most human rights or to many human rights treaties and the ones where it does sign on to like the Convention Against Torture it tends to not sign on to the optional complaints mechanisms or the international legal disputes mechanisms. There are some recourses nonetheless and a couple of those are through the or several of those are through the United Nations uh, Human Rights Council thematic mechanisms. Uh, what the United Nations Human Rights Council has done is, is set up a number of thematic mechanisms, rapporteurs, working groups, dealing with specific human rights uh, issues. Uh, there's a, a rapporteur on torture, there's, there's a working group on disappearances, there's a working group on arbitrary detention and so on, and, and there's dozens of them. Uh, uh, and and these thematic mechanisms, they're not treaty-based, uh, they're just council-based, and uh, so they have jurisdiction over the whole world, in, including China, whether, and, and there's no agreement necessary from states of the United Nations for these mechanisms to deal with human rights in those countries. And uh, so these mechanisms can and have in the past uh, dealt with China, and uh, I was dealing, for instance, with the UN rapporteur on torture and the UN rapporteur on religious intolerance uh, about uh, this issue of organ transplant abuse in Falun Gong and also with the UN Committee Ag Against Torture uh, because China is a, a, 
a signatory to the Convention Against Torture, also with the Universal Periodic Review at the UN Human Rights Council, because uh, the Universal Periodic Review, as the name indicates, is universal, and, and China comes up for review uh, every few years, and then any state can raise any human rights con concern at once during the Universal Periodic Review. The, uh, when it comes to the Universal Periodic uh, Review or the Convention Against Torture, we are dealing with uh, periodicity. Uh, we are dealing with events which occur every so often. Uh, but when it comes to the thematic mechanisms, they're continuously functioning. Uh, they report to the Human Rights Council every year, uh, and uh, they uh, can take uh, complaints at any time or petitions. Now, the, these human rights mechanisms do have complaints uh, or petition uh, options, and the uh, the petitions are open to everybody. Uh, they're they're open to, to states. They're open to NGOs, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, of course they're they're open to the victims and their families. But the consent is not necessary. Uh, the uh, of the families or the victims. I mean, obviously, in some situations. Uh, the consent of the victims is impossible where they're disappeared or, or, or maybe arbitrarily executed and, and the families may be intimidated which is often often the case with, with in China where the the Communist Party makes a point of not just intimidating their target but everybody in their network to try to get at their target and and, and so often the only available recourse, which which is true really of my uh, dealing with uh, Falun Gong, is an outsider who, who has no connection to China and no point of pressure. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to lose any business with China by doing this sort of thing because I don't have any business with, uh, with China. And, and, and so that's the system. It is a, a system of uh, complaint or petition by NGOs or somebody like Rebel News. They can make such a complaint or petition, uh, and and then the, the, the thematic mechanism will deal with it. Well, now, Professor, we would like it. to do that because we, like so many Canadians and others around the world, have watched what we perceive to be inaction on the part of the Canadian government. There's the odd, gentle statement, but there's been no diplomatic repercussions, no sanctions, no deported diplomats, no trade... Uh, you know consequences. I, I, I think that the uh, the fact that those two men are still in detention a year and a half later says everything we need to know. Now I, I want to tell our viewers that you did take steps to reach out to the family, to get their thoughts on this pro process, to invite them to participate, to invite them to receive updates. Uh, what have you heard back, if anything, from the families? after you emailed and reached out to them about our proposed steps? Well, yes, that's true. Uh, there, there was a communication to the families because we did have contact information telling them that, that we, that, uh, well, Rebel News was planning to do this, that we would keep them in touch. We wanted to inform them. Uh, we invited them uh, to participate if they wanted to participate. We haven't heard back from them since. Uh, the communication is relatively recent. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that tells us anything yet because very often people uh, uh, are slow in communications and uh, and also I assume they get a lot of stuff but uh, in any case uh, the uh, it, it, we're giving them an option of something they may want to do but 
they don't have to answer and and, and uh, their non-answer is uh, th there is no requirement for them to answer for the UN system becoming to become engaged and I can imagine it, that given the, the thing they care about most th uh, these people are still in grave jeopardy they most like I'm trying to put myself in their shoes they most likely would not want to be seen as being personally antagonistic to the government of China. So uh, even if they were to reply, it would be under a form of duress. It would almost be like asking a hostage, do you like, do you want us to help? I mean, uh, but I'm glad you did reach out to them and of course keep us posted what they say. Uh, tell our viewers, what would the form of a complaint be? You mentioned that there are these uh, thematic groups at the UN Human Rights Council. Would it be the form of a letter? Uh, is it a formal application, a formal report? What would it look like what you would prefer, prepare as a lawyer? You would refer to certain principles and bring facts to the attention of the UN? Is it just a letter? The, uh, the UN website actually tells you what they want uh, and uh, they ask for a specific uh, types of information. Obviously what they want is as much detail as possible because uh, often uh, the problem is that when people make complaints it's difficult to know exactly what they're talking about. So uh, names, dates, times, places, uh, as, as much detail about the specific uh, violation as you could possibly get. Uh, they'd be interested in exhaustion of remedies, uh, you know, not in terms of Canada, but in terms of China, like what what has been done or could be done uh, in China to uh, alleviate the plight of these people. They'd be interested in other remedies that are being sought that might be useful uh, either in the UN system or anywhere else around the world. Uh, they'd be interested in how uh, the particular complaint fits within the mandate of the theme mechanism to which the complaint is being addressed. Th those are the sorts of things that uh, the complaint would address. Um, I have a question for you, and it would touch on anything of the United Nations. China uh, is very influential at the UN. It runs four agencies and effectively controls a fifth. We saw their interference recently with the World Health Organization. Uh, what is the ability of China simply to veto or crush or shut down or summarily dismiss something that criticizes it? Because the UN is not friendly to democratic activists who ask pesky questions like you will do. Um, what do you think China will do in reaction to our uh, legal complaint? Well, as, as I said, typically what happens with these complaints is, is that uh, the uh, rapporteur will send the complaint to the foreign government for response. And, and then in the report uh, afterwards, the, uh, typically what happens is that the rapporteur will put in the complaint, report on the complaint and report on the response and, and may draw some concluding or may, may draw some observations based on it. The um, and my experience is, at least with the, some of the other times I've dealt with the system, is, is the exercise is useful, e even if when you're dealing with China, what you get back is, is nonsense. Uh, 
the uh, because if I were to write to the government of China directly and say I don't like what you're doing with the two Michaels, I would probably they'd probably just ignore it. But uh, with the UN system, uh, although, they, although they may generate nonsense in response, they feel they can't ignore it, so they, they will reply. And uh, a nonsensical reply uh, from the government of China serves its own purpose because it, it becomes possible to point out how nonsensical it is. And uh, so, for instance, with this organ transplant abuse, uh, we were concerned about the government of China was saying, look at, uh, you know, they were boasting, look at how big our transplant numbers are, trying to show their technologically head, head in transplants. And, and so then the, the, the UN rapporteur said, well, okay, you've got these big transplant numbers, where do the organs come from? And the response to that was, we never said our transplant numbers were big, uh, which, which of course they had said, and it was posted on their internet sites at the same time as they were denying they said it. So, I mean, it was just such obvious nonsense that it became another point of attack. Uh, and uh, so I would say that exercise, uh, I mean, obviously didn't stop the abuse and it still continues. It, it just added to the weight of the argument that we had and gave us an additional reason why uh, our position was strong. Because, I mean, if the government of China, in response to a well-reasoned argument, can answer only nonsense. The answer—it must be that they don't have a, a good answer if all they can give is a bad answer. Huh. Well, so that's that's the goal here: is to write a complaint that properly marshals the facts and the law and shows what China's doing, and at the very least, compel them to give. I, I guess it's like question period in Parliament. That way, you don't really get a good answer most of the time but sometimes the absurdity of the answer is telling in itself. So that's our goal here. Um, write a letter to bring attention to this and smoke out China's answers and maybe use those to contradict China or to, to show how, how unlawful they are. That's our goal. Is that correct? Yes, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think question period is a good analogy. I, I don't mean to suggest that the government uh, <laughs> is anything like the government of China, but... But otherwise, I think it's a good, good analogy. Well, what do you think? The plan is simple and small, but I think it's better than zero, better than nothing, Trudeau's approach. Draft a formal complaint about how the two Michaels are being mistreated by China. File it with the special rapporteurs at the UN's Human Rights Council. Make China answer it. And use their answer politically and diplomatically to name and shame China as breaking international law breaking international norms. They hate that. They don't like losing face. We have a few other ideas too, but the main thing is to do something, something that the world will at least see and hear, not the total silent surrender that Trudeau is doing. Will this free the two Michaels? Probably not. Will it bring their plight to a wider audience? You bet it will. Will we hopefully spur actual politicians to do something more, maybe even to take over this project? I hope so. In any event, we're just going to do it. I just feel like we have to. If you want to help, please do. We're paying Professor Maitis' fee for his legal work. We'll file a complaint when it's ready, which should be soon. And when the time is right, we will actually go to Geneva, Switzerland, where the UN Human Rights Council is, and maybe make a bit of a fuss about this, too. I do need your help, please. I've signed a retainer agreement with Professor Matus to cover his fees and his travel costs if we go to Geneva. If you think this is a good idea, please help me out by going to free 
the2michaels.com, freethe2michaels.com. I will post updates at that website when the legal complaint is ready. We'll publish the legal complaint itself. You can read it for yourself. And all of our follow-up work, including hopefully the trip to Geneva itself. This is a small step, but that's more than anything Trudeau has done. If you believe in standing up to China and calling out their bullying and standing up for Canadian citizens, please go to freethe2michaels.com and lend a hand. Thanks. It most certainly was a global affair. Groups of Canadians from many cultures stood together this past Sunday to condemn the authoritarian regime of the Chinese Communist Party. Drea Humphrey here with Rebel News and on Sunday, September 27th, I found myself back in front of the Chinese consulate on Granville Street in Vancouver for yet another anti-communist party of China protests. Now, these protests are becoming more and more frequent in Vancouver, and despite 27% of Vancouver's ethnic makeup consisting of the Chinese community, protests like this are still getting next to no coverage by the mainstream media. Over 100 protesters attended the event called a Global Day of Action, Resist CCP, Freedom Now. The protest was hosted by a variety of Canadian communities, including Chinese, Hong Kongers, Indo-Canadians, Tibetans and Uyghurs. There were passionate speakers and plenty of signs held by protesters, as well as on top of vehicles that continuously drove by. Indoctrination, communism and genocide were just some of the heavy topics discussed as these groups stood together to call on our government and our people to resist the CCP. But instead of me explaining things further, watch and see for yourself as the protesters share their message and tell China to back off. Back off China! Back off China! Back off China! Back off China! Today we are here to support and raise the voice for our Michael Kovrig and our Michael Spavor, who are illegally detained in China. China is the biggest bully in the world. China is the biggest land mafia in the world. China has land disputes with 17 countries in the world. And the South China Sea which it shares with other countries. It has the dispute with every other country. If we buy Canadian products, we support our Canada. Buy caught Canadian goods. Buy caught Chinese goods, support Canadian goods. Buy caught China, back off China. This is our slogan. We represent a group in BC that are looking to acquire sovereignty. And by acquiring our sovereignty, it'll empower us to better deal with the CP CCP takeover. Um, right now, Canada is actually a corporation, and we are all subject to the monarch. It's a corporation of the monarch, right? And um, we're coming here to, to show other people that by gaining our state sovereignty, we'll be able to empower us and we'll be, be in a better position to help China and other countries deal with the CCP. If you look at all the things that the CCP have done, uh, the genocide against the Uyghurs, uh, you know, what they've done with Tibet, Tetans, and with what they're doing in Hong Kong, destroying a free society, 
The actions are comparable to the Nazis. Also the way that they are menacing their neighbors like India and neighbors in the South China Sea. Um, you know, this is comparative to the Nazis and we need to recognize this threat. And, you know, first it starts with not engaging with them, not doing business, pretending that it's business as usual, but fighting against this. Uh, removing the infiltration within Canada and then, you know, taking the fight to the CCP and supporting people from Hong Kong, supporting the Uyghurs, supporting Tibetans, supporting all the victims and standing for the values that we hold dear as Canadians, like freedom of speech and basic human rights. Tell us what this means to you right now. Huh? What does this mean to you right now? CCP is Hitler, is controlling. He's not doing a favor for the entire world. Instead, he is ruining our whole system. China, 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 you're fine. China, China, China. I'm ethnically Uyghur myself. I was uh, born in Kazakhstan, moved here in grade three, and it's it's for my people. I'm here for my people. Currently, China occupies my territory, just like Canada once occupied this territory. And I wanted to say that this right here, this is the Chinese embassy on unceded territory on Canadian native land. They are not welcome here. I do not welcome them here. I. Ha they have never, you know, asked no indigenous people about this. And me, as an indigenous person to East Turkestan, I'm telling the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, to leave my land and leave my people alone. And the only reason I'm speaking up now is because I have no more people to lose. You know, back in the day, we all have feared of losing people back home. But now, we have nothing to lose. All the people are already taken. And we are standing up here for our family, for my cousins, for my aunts, for my friends. You know, for all the blood that I shared back home and I wanted to say that I am here and I will not give up until the CCP stops what they are doing and I want the CCP to take this as a threat because I feel like I am an average person but so is everyone here and with numbers we will event inevitably either hold on to the culture they're trying to take down or we will stand up and fight against, you know, we, I will not let them win. Thank you. I wanted to thank the CCP as a matter of fact for one thing they did is they made me realize that I'm an Uyghur. I am from East Turkestan and I wasn't connected to my land as much as I am now. And I want to thank him that uh, even if it was against their agenda, I'm here right now standing opposed to them, but thanking them for making me more Uyghur and preserving the culture. In 2020, we have up to 3 million Uyghurs in northwestern China, um, known as Xinjiang, but we call it East Turkestan. It's the uh, indigenous land to Uyghurs. Um, so what's going on right now is China is ethnically cleansing um, Uyghurs by taking them into concentration camps where they're being tortured, brainwashed, um, forced sterilization, forced labor, and they've been evidenced with, um, with our favorite brands that are complicit like Zara, Nike, Google, Apple, and more. And um, so basically um, they're using religion as a mean to ethnically cleanse them. There have been cases where people who pray or people who like have a beard, that's, uh, they've been sent to concentration camps so basically what they're trying to do is like ethnically cleanse the Uyghur uh, minority. It's usually called East Turkestan, but ever since China took over, they've like, I don't know, persecuted over 3 million, 4 million Uyghurs. And I don't even know what's happening to my family, extended family there. 
And you know, it's like, it's just sad not knowing where your grandparents are, where your cousins are. Like. I am a, a, an ethnic Uyghur and I haven't been talked to my family members for three years. Not only me, but also millions of Uyghurs outside of China has have same situation like me and uh, I have to raise awareness I have to talk about what's happening right now in East Turkestan Chinese occupied country and it's more than 8 million people are uh, detained in Chinese concentration camps and uh, even Chinese officials they already confirmed it is more than 8 million people and then it is genocide and then, uh, I want everyone to stand up against uh, this genocide modern-day genocide we said never again but it's happening right now in uh, my country I support um, the the Falun Dafa, the Falun Gong movement. These people are being persecuted in China, horribly treated and having their organs harvested, and yet nobody here is talking about it. Uh, well, no big politicians are. Uh, and as a supporter of the People's Party and Maxime Bernier, uh, he's he's one of the only politicians that are going to be tough on China about with um, with persecuting them for uh, and holding them accountable for this these kind of actions that they're taking against their own citizens. And I stand with Hong Kong and uh, and their uh, plight for freedom. What brought you guys to this protest today? Well, we are standing with Canada. We are standing with all the democracy, and we are tired of uh, Chinese Communist Party bullying democracies like like Canada. Uh, we are here for uh, two Michaels who have been illegally and uh, captured by Chinese Communist Party. They they didn't do anything wrong. There's no due process, and it's it's really sad. Like what China has done to Tibet, what they have done to Uyghur Muslims, what they are doing to democracies like India, China, everywhere, and 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 their irresponsibility towards uh, Wuhan virus, coronavirus. So we are actually paying for that. Left alone the real estate market and how unaffordable it is with illegal Chinese money. But we are suffering and it's enough. We need to stand up to China. So that's why we are here. Absolutely. Now, what do you think needs to happen for more people who don't have direct ties with China or India but live in Canada? What needs to happen for them to start taking notice about these things? I think democracies, like our government, needs to stand up for the Canadians that are incarcerated in Canada. So those two Michaels that aren't that aren't getting due process and that are in prison, basically getting tortured. So more awareness needs to be happen, and governments need to stand up to China and. and make sure that China is upholding human rights, which it's not. Why do you think a lot of Canadians in this area still don't know a whole lot about what's going on? Um, I think part of that is, you know, being distracted by other things. I mean, we were dealing with a pandemic. Um, I think the pandemic's actually helped in bringing the threat of the CCP to light. Um, I, I think, too, that one thing this is I've heard this from some politicians is that they believe that if you criticize the CCP that it's uh, it's racism or it's criticizing Chinese people which couldn't be further from the truth I mean if you look at this gathering uh, like 80% of the people are ethnic Chinese I am half Chinese like the, the people who have suffered the most under the CCP are Chinese people so it's time for our politicians to wake up take a stand against this government as completely different from Chinese people who are innocent that is you know, threatening its neighbors, that is uh, kidnapped two of our citizens and continues to threaten us.
you know, Canada, we are a middle power. We need to find allies that share our values and stand with them against the CCP. We did this during World War II. We stood with the United Kingdom. We stood with the United States against the Nazis. We need to do the same thing against the CCP. Nowadays, we can see that um, CCP is trying to invade a lot of um, human rights. They're trying to take away our democracy, our freedoms. And especially because I'm a Hong Kong, I'm a Hong Koner. I'm from Hong Kong, and I can see what the um, what the Chinese government is doing. I can see how they're abusing our human rights. So I think for me as a Hong Koner, I think it's definitely important for me to stand up and say, no, this is not how you should treat us. No, this is not how you should treat Hong Kong people or anyone in this world. We're here in Canada, in Vancouver, we're, we're kind of neighbors and we, we feel and are connected with what's going on there and we're trying to make awareness here for uh, what the CCP is doing to uh, countries around the world, specifically Canada here and uh, just here to stand up for freedoms and rights of the people and you know say no to communism and uh, you know that's you know a lot of our grandparents fought for this and we we're not just going to let it all go to nothing china has border disputes with almost every country they illegally occupied so much land and uh, a few soldiers you know got killed and uh, it, it's not nice like we have seen what happened to tibet we have seen what happened to hong kong we are seeing they are uh, you know, threatening Taiwan. It can happen to India as well. It can happen to Nepal. It can happen to Canada. Canada, it's such a small country, you know, 33 million people. And it's uh, it's really sad, like, uh, how we, we see that, you know, uh, Chinese Communist Party control Canadian politics. And, and people are just too afraid, too afraid to even speak. And I think that's why, you know, I'm showing my face because I want people to know that you can show your face. You don't have to be afraid. You will not lose your job. If everybody speaks, you are not afraid of losing the business. Right? Canadian values are, I think, more superior than any communist regime. And, and we stand for that. You guys saw it with your own eyes right here, Vancouver, BC in Canada. Quite a historical moment right in front of a huge poster of President Xi Jinping. There's the burning, Canadians are burning the Chinese Communist Party flag. Drea Humphrey for Rebel News. The debut of the live action version of Disney's Mulan is a big deal. Lots of adults like Disney movies too. They're so well done. But there's a problem with Mulan, which is the story of a Chinese warrior princess. The problem is not with the story itself or how it's told, but where it was filmed and specifically the credits at the end of the movie. Most shocking. As you can see here, the Disney film was filmed in the Xinjiang region of China, which is the Uyghur Muslim region, and it gives special thanks to a variety of Chinese propaganda outlets, including the Public Security Bureau in the city of Turpan, or Tulufan as it's called in China. Well, that's where concentration camps for those same Chinese Uyghur Muslims are located. Why would Disney film there to begin with? And why would it so submissively give praise and thanks to so many Chinese propaganda outlets and to the secret police there? Joining us now to talk about this is our friend Gordon Cheng, a senior commentator on the subject. And I must recommend 
that you follow Gordon every day on Twitter, which I do. He's at Gordon G. Chang on Twitter, and he joins us now via Skype. Gordon, the movie itself is not the story. Disney does a good job. It's the striking and startling bending of the knee to the secret police of China. That's bizarre. Yeah, this is horrific, because as you point out, um, these are the same people who run concentration camps. And as a part of China's minority policies toward the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs, it's not just detaining 1.3 million or perhaps as many as 3 million. It's also uh, genocidal policies, institutional slavery, um, officialized rape. Um, this is horrific. And for Disney to film in uh, that area was wrong in itself. And certainly to thank them publicly um, just shows complicity with crimes against humanity. I read an interesting story um, about this in The Washington Post by Isaac Stonefish. Um, and he reminds us that Disney got offside with China uh, more than 20 years ago when it produced a film that was sympathetic to the Dalai Lama and that Disney for years tried to apologize, personally apologize to the senior leadership of the Communist Party to, to win its way back into the heart of the Communist Party, just like the NBA has, just like so many corporations have. And he posits that this is Disney's way of saying sorry and thank you and we'll bend the knee to you and we'll never be disobedient again. It suggests that this flourish of praising the secret police is a purposeful uh, bond with the Chinese Communist Party. I find that convincing. What do you think? Well, that's certainly a convincing explanation. Now, we don't know Disney's motivation. Only people in the inside of the organization do. Um, but we can see what Disney does. And what Disney does is just wrong. It's offensive to all of the ideals um, that Americans hold. Um, now, when you have companies that do business in China, this is going to happen. And it really is up to, uh, the, United, to the, the White House to establish policies that uh, change the incentives for American companies. Because as long as they can do business in Xinjiang or what the um, Uyghurs call East Turkestan, this type of stuff is going to happen. I've seen uh, Secretary Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, get tougher and tougher with China, including um, the most recent thing I saw was criticism uh, and denunciation. And I'm not sure if there's actually trade barriers to importing goods made by these slave labor camps. I, I need to brief myself more on that. But it would be uh, a shot across the bow of all of Hollywood if the Secretary of State or some trade uh, uh, or, or commerce secretary were to say, if you film a film in Xinjiang uh, that is not, you know, a, an investigative journalistic piece, that will be treated as if you use slave labor to make masks. I, I'm just brainstorming here. The thing is, Disney is almost taunting the United States and saying, we've chosen sides here. Not only are we doing business with China, we will do business with the Chinese security apparatus in Xinjiang. And this movie, which we hope to make a billion dollars, is a product of that. Imagine if this movie were deemed, in, like I don't believe in censorship and I don't want a totalitarian control of the American economy and certainly not the expressive industries like Hollywood. But this is a pretty dramatic flick of the nose 
to Americans and to Secretary Pompeo by the Disney company. They're basically saying, we're going to do business with the worst people in the worst place. Try and stop us. Yeah, a couple things going on here. So, for instance, even before the Trump administration, the United States had laws against the importation into the U.S. of goods made with forced labor. Um, and what the uh, Trump administration has done is it's actually started to enforce those laws because previous administrations often did not. Um, also, the Trump administration has been sanctioning um, a number of entities in Xinjiang. And uh, I think that a few more sanctions are going to be imposed in the not too distant future on products coming out of Xinjiang. So we're moving in the right direction. We obviously need to move faster. Um, but this is, as you point out, controversial because we're talking about um, the products of intellectual property, which always raise First Amendment and other concerns. You know, it's tough because I know my kids are going to want to watch it. They don't understand what a Uyghur is. They don't understand these issues. They just want to see the, new, the newest Disney movie. And I'm sure it's the same with the NBA. Uh, people just want to see basketball. And all these popular American cultural industries are lending their reputations to China in a way that we never saw with the Soviet Union. And in a way that we, we don't see with other rogue regimes like North Korea or Iran, it's just China because it's so economically dominant. Every Western capitalist rushes to, to make a deal. How do we decouple from that? How do we put some distance between us so they're not actually turning our kids and our sports fans and our moviegoers into passive allies of the Communist Party? That's a great question. Um, and I think you start with a number of uh, measures that are already on the books. So, for instance, we know that Nike has a three-decade relationship with a South Korean supplier who has a factory in Qingdao in the northeastern part of China um, where Uyghurs are work under forced labor conditions, essentially slaves. And these are, um, ethnic, these are religious and ethnic and uh, racial minorities. Um, so what we need to do is prevent the importation of goods by Nike into the U.S. That's going to start to hurt. Um, you know, in terms of the NBA itself, um, the comments that it made uh, last year um, were craven. Um, and this is a more difficult issue. But the way to stop that would be for the president of the United States to use his powers under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977 to prohibit the NBA from certain activities in China. Now, this is going to hurt the NBA. But uh, given what's at stake, and, and you well laid that out, I think that these are steps that we need to take, because um, obviously we're talking about American values here, and we do not need to raise any more children um, to believe in totalitarianism, slavery, genocide, and all the rest of it. And that's exactly what's happening right now. Yeah, especially in this current uh, uh, cultural moment where we're talking about the slavery and, and racism of the past in America, this great national trauma, to turn a blind eye to it in communist China is quite something. What do you think of this idea? And I'll, I know you're so busy, you've got to run to do more interviews. Uh, we're always grateful when you stop by our place. Um, one way that a president could push back in a way that doesn't harm the First Amendment uh, and that isn't really meddlesome is to use the bully pulpit. I've seen Trump do that with other cultural industries that get too woke, whether it's uh, 
uh, NFL or NBA or, I mean, he, he's not shy to speak out and criticize. And maybe if the president, I mean, the, the trouble with that is America's so polarized, whatever Trump criticizes, some people reflect, reflexively defend just to be opposite of Trump. But maybe what we need here is not bans or tariffs or, or, or I don't know, uh, some sort of sanctions, but to change the way we talk about made in China, to denormalize it in general. And it's so ubiquitous, it's tough, but to start to get people to say, oh, made in China, that's not a free place, is it? Why is it? And what are the risks? Just to, to use the bully pulpit to change the reputation of stuff made in a dictatorship. Maybe that's too loosey-goosey and too vague, but what do you think of that? Well, certainly, and, and President Trump uh, and certainly Secretary of State Pompeo have talked about uh, China's uh, human rights violations. Um, Secretary Pompeo dwelt on this um, in his uh, July 23 speech at the Nixon Presidential Library, which is a landmark address. Um, so clearly the administration is along that path. But the administration can also use its emergency powers to decouple the Chinese and the uh, American in the American economies. And, and President Trump has been talking about that most recently in his Labor Day press conference, which I think was incre incredibly important in some of the things that he said about China. So we're on this road, Ezra. Um, we're not going to get there as fast as I would like. Um, but we have seen President Trump, unlike his predecessors, tackle this issue head on. And we are making progress. Last question, just 10 seconds before we go. Are there any Democrats you can name who are strong on this issue? It would be so much more helpful if this was a bipartisan issue. Can you name a Democrat that's strong on this stuff? Well, um, before this uh, campaign, which is just warping um, many people's views, I would say um, Chuck Schumer, the senator from New York, the minority leader in the Senate, and as well as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. They've had some very important things they've said about China. They haven't said them recently because of the campaign, however. Hmm. Well, always an education. You've given me some homework. I'm going to go watch that speech at the Nixon Center, and I'll rewatch Trump's Labor Day press conference. Great to see you again. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Ezra. Well, it's our great pleasure. My name is Ezra Levant, and I'm a Canadian journalist and author. Full disclosure, I'm a skeptic of Justin Trudeau, Canada's Liberal Prime Minister. Last year, I wrote a book about him called The Libranos. This year, I wrote a book about him called China Virus, how Justin Trudeau's pro-communist ideology is putting Canadians in danger. But even I didn't know the half of it. I've never held a top secret document in my hands before. Uh, this one is marked secret in so many places. In some parts, it says Canadian eyes only. Other parts are marked five eyes only. That's the name of our intelligence alliance amongst our closest allies, Canada, plus the United States, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. I wonder what they're going to think of all this. The China files, as I call them, are 34 pages long. I didn't steal them or hack them, nor were they leaked to me illegally. They were actually just given to me by Global Affairs Canada. That's the official name of the Foreign Affairs Department. You can see the entire document all the files for yourself at thechinafiles.com. I'm making the whole thing available to you and to any other reporters who want to report on this. Something tells me Trudeau's CBC state broadcaster is going to skip this one, don't you think?
Uh, the documents are not blacked out, as most secret documents are. Normally, you can't read the interesting parts, but not these. They're all just slightly grayed out, so you can still read them. In fact, if you assume that what's grayed out is the stuff they really don't want you to know, it makes the reading even more revealing because you see what they really think is sensitive. Now, there's nothing in here about Canada's uh, military secrets. The, the grayed-out parts weren't trying to hide that stuff. They were trying to hide how submissive Trudeau is to China and what he's trying to get our military to do. That's what's marked in gray, but not in black. By the way, I would never put Canadian troops in danger. There actually is one source who was identified in these papers who might be punished by China. So I blacked out that info. The rest, it's just politics that you need to know. So I don't know, maybe it was human error on the government's part to send this to me. Maybe someone on the inside wanted information to get out. A whistleblower, perhaps. Because I only asked one very small question, and they answered it with these 34 pages. Back in April of 2019, I saw this story in a Russian state-run propaganda website called Sputnik. Uh, representatives from over 60 countries arrived in China for International Naval Parade. That's the headline. I'll read a little bit. Representatives from the Navy of 61 countries arrived in the Chinese eastern port city of Qingdao in order to attend the International Parade celebrating the 70th anniversary of the Chinese People's Liberation Army PLA Navy, Vice Admiral Shen Jinlong said. And here's a tweet from the city of Qingdao showing some of China's naval might and different countries coming to celebrate it. Now, I expected Russia to be there and China's African colonies, but the sentence caught my eye. Uh, this one here. High-ranking representatives from Canada, Germany, India, Mexico, Japan, South Korea, and the United States and the United Kingdom are also in attendance at the event. Well, Canada was there and the U.S. too under Donald Trump? I didn't believe it to celebrate China's military power. Uh, actually, no. Here's the real story from Business Insider. The U.S. is passing on sending ships to the Chinese Navy's big 70th anniversary parade in an apparent snub. Basically, America sent their top spy in China, let me quote. The U.S., however, will only send a defense attaché from the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Okay, so they sent a spy. So what about Canada? Remember, look at the date on this Sputnik story, April 2019. So that was just a few months after China took the two Michaels hostage. Did Justin Trudeau really send a celebration delegation to cheer for communist China's navy right after two kidnapped Canadians were thrown in the Chinese jail? I checked the website of the Canadian embassy in China. They didn't say a thing about attending this parade. No press releases out of Ottawa. So was it true what the Russian propaganda website said about Canada? Was it partly true, like how the U.S. did send someone but it was really a spy? Or was this just Russian propaganda? So we filed an access to information request, as we do hundreds of times a year, asking for any documents that would shed light on the question. Of course, we thought such documents would be redacted for national security secrets, but attending a communist parade is something we had the right to know. Now, we heard back pretty quick. They refused to answer our question, 
before the 2019 Canadian election was over. Uh, that's an illegal delay, but they do that all the time. Well, the election is over, plus a year. And so now, 19 months after we asked the question, we finally heard back from the government. And instead of just telling us about the parade, they told us everything else too. You saw my question. It was about the Navy parade. Well, they sent me the entire calendar of events for the Canadian Embassy in Beijing from April to December of 2019. And it's all grayed out. I think they meant to black out the whole thing. But look, April 22nd to 25, PLA Navy 70th Anniversary Fleet Review, Qingdao. They did indeed go. Canada sent a colonel. That would have answered my question, but look at what else is on the calendar. All the celebrations and parties that the Canadian Embassy was having just months after the kidnapping of the two Michaels in Beijing. You can see the calendar showed that Catherine McKenna jetted into Hangzhou for some global warming festival in June. What a horrific woman flying to China to party while two Canadians were rotting in a Chinese prison. You'll notice that event in particular was under a dark gray highlight. I can understand why they wanted to hide that. It's not a national security issue. It's a national shame issue. The bureaucrats at Foreign Affairs knew it was disgraceful for McKenna to fly to China to go to a party. And look, in October 2019, Canada sent a massive delegation of Canadian Armed Forces personnel to participate in China's military world games in Wuhan. I'm serious. 114 Canadian athletes, 57 Canadian coaches. They're all from the military. I actually had to get those details from the Chinese embassy. You see, the Chinese propaganda mission for nearly 200 Canadian forces personnel, this whole games was just a propaganda exercise. That was kept secret by the Canadian government. I had to learn about it from the Chinese government. Trudeau sent over a massive delegation to show respect to China's army, to be filmed for China propaganda movies, showing that China so dominates the world that Canadian soldiers came to bend the knee even as China holds Canadians prisoner. So you'd think that's all I would have been sent, the calendar. It answered my question, was the Russian propaganda correct? Did Canada send someone to celebrate China's Navy? And the answer was yes. I think it's telling that Trudeau hid that for 19 months and that we had to find out about it from Russia. I think Trudeau knows he was doing something disgraceful and maybe the person who sent me these documents agrees. So that's all I asked for. But here's what else I got. I got internal memos showing how China is demanding that democracies back down on having any reference to human rights in trade deals. Internal reports about how China is using its so-called Belt and Road Initiative to colonize the world, to build a China-centric economic and political empire. How China is changing diplomacy itself, replacing the idea of multilateralism, which is like the Knights of the Round Table where every country equally deals with each other country, like at the United Nations. China is replacing that with something China calls multi-bilateralism, with China in the middle of the world, like a hub, with a bunch of spokes going to each other country. So no more international meetings like the G7, for example. China-style meetings have China in the center, and all other countries have to go through it to deal with the others. 
That's interesting. Something else I learned was how badly the Canadian government censors itself about China by looking at the sort of things that they wanted to block us from seeing, the grayed out stuff, because they didn't want Xi Jinping to lose face. Canada is sticking up for the Chinese president. Why are they afraid that Xi Jinping will see that they're calling out his censorship under the great firewall of China? Why did they want to keep that hidden? And why is Trudeau trying to cover up the fact that China is censoring Twitter? The Canadian government mentions an allegation by an NGO that China is using smartphones to track Muslims in Xinjiang province. Why did they cover up the fact that the Canadian embassy has, quote, seen this app in use at police checkpoints in Xinjiang? Why is Trudeau literally covering up, covering up atrocities for China? There's enough in here for at least three other videos, and I will do those in the days ahead and publish them on thechinafiles.com. It's just so much to go through here. This document will take weeks to work through, so for the rest of this video, I want to talk about just one thing, the most shocking revelation in it. These papers show an internal battle within the Canadian government over how to deal with China in the wake of the kidnapping of the two Michaels. On one side of this political battle is China, Trudeau, his pro-China ambassador at the time, John McCallum, and senior bureaucrats, including this man, Ian Sugart, who used to run foreign affairs for Trudeau, and who has since been promoted as Trudeau's top civil servant. His title is the chief of the Privy Council. That's on the China side. And on the other side of this political battle is the Canadian Armed Forces, the Department of National Defense, and our Five Eyes allies, including the U.S. It's incredible, and folks, the China side seems to be winning. The battle I'm going to show you centered on a memo that the Trudeau-China team was drafting to be signed by Ian Sugar, telling the military uh, to obey them and to keep warm relations with the People's Liberation Army even after the kidnapping of the two Michaels. So all the bureaucrats were trying uh, to tie down and tie up the Canadian military, which was clearly disgusted by China and naturally wanted to stand with our real allies instead. So the battle was over this memo. Memorandum for action, it says. And you see it's marked secret CEO. That means Canadian eyes only. So I'll, I'll go through it. Two. Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, at the time that was Ian Sugard. CC, IFM, OGM, Th that's an alphabet soup for the political affairs branch and the Asia branch of foreign affairs. Subject, Deputy Minister level guidance from Global Affairs Canada with respect to Department of National Defense, Canadian Armed Forces engagements with China's People's Liberation Army. So I, I read out the acronyms there. So this is the memo put to the deputy minister for him to sign. This is directing the army to play nice with China. Let me read the contents of this memo. As you can see, I'm reading out the full acronyms because otherwise it's just so many alphabets, letters. But it, it's hard to see this because of all the shading, the gray shading. But you can read it all. Uh, you can go to our website, thechinafiles.com, and see the primary document yourself. So I'll read some of it now for you. It's a little hard to see, but you can see it. Summary, and note how this is 90% grayed out. 
On December 21st, so that would be in 2018, right after the two Michaels were kidnapped, the Department of National Defense requested deputy minister-level guidance with respect to Department of National Defense Canadian Armed Forces bilateral engagements with China. Department of Defense Canadian Armed Forces is reviewing its posture and commitments to its engagements with the People's Liberation Army in part due to Chinese response to the U.S. extradition request for Ms. Meng Wanzhou and the resulting Canadian consular cases. Stop right there for a second. Isn't it funny? This memo mentions Miss Meng Wanzhou by name, but won't even say the names of the two Michaels, won't even say they're prisoners, hostages, really. It's disgraceful the way they talk even in private in the government. But get this. Thus far, the chief of the defense staff has unilaterally elected not to proceed with one bilateral military activity training exercise planned for 2019, a winter survival training exercise. China, People's Liberation Army, has not yet been informed of this decision. I'm stunned. I'm serious. Did you know that Canada had a bilateral military training exercise with China? Bilateral means one-on-one. It's just Canada and China there. And apparently we do a number of these. So just Canada and China training together, our NATO allies not invited, the Americans who have subsidized our Canadian national defense for decades throughout the Cold War, throughout the War on Terror, the Americans, our greatest friends and allies, We kicked them out and we're hanging out with China's soldiers instead. We're inviting China's soldiers to learn our military secrets. And now the chief of defense staff wants to put one, just one, such exercise on hold. The cold weather warfare session where we train China how to beat us in in Canada. How we train China how to beat India in their mountain battle that's been going on for months. Um, The chief of defense staff thinks that maybe we ought to put that on hold. And here's what the Trudeaucrats write. They say, while resolving the consular cases is the government of Canada's top priority. Again, they they won't say Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor's names. They just won't. Um, While resolving the consular cases is the government of Canada's top priority, ensuring a certain amount of continuity in other parts of the Canada-China relationship remains important. Given the heightened scrutiny, any decision by Canada to reduce or cut ties should be carefully considered to avoid sending any unhelpful or unintended messages. So Trudeau and his staff are lecturing the army. Don't you dare stand up for Canadian values. Don't you dare stand up for two Canadians illegally kidnapped. You keep pretending everything is just fine. That's an order. And that's what the rest of the memo is about. The bureaucrats instructing the chief of defense staff that he is not allowed to cut any more joint programs with the People's Liberation Army without Trudeau's permission first. Let me read some more. In the interest of avoiding such a scenario, a letter has been drafted on your behalf for Department of National Defense's Deputy Minister Thomas that will provide guidance consistent with Canada's current approach to China. Look at that. If they really had blacked out the gray parts here, you would have no idea what this is about. You'd know nothing. You wouldn't know that our army trains the Chinese troops. You wouldn't know the army wanted to cancel only one of several joint training sessions. And you wouldn't know that deeply enraged Trudeau and the whole liberal bureaucracy 
who wanted to handcuff the chief of defense staff and force him to continue working with Chinese army uh, troops uh, unless he was given explicit permission otherwise. So that's the cover letter to the memo, and then they have their arguments. And I know this video is getting long, but frankly, it's all leading to this. Look at this part. Look at the very, very dark part in paragraph two. I'll read it out if you can't quite see it. The review is also driven by concerns expressed by the United States military that at least one element of Canada-China military collaboration planned for 2019 risks unintended and undesired knowledge transfer from Canada to the PLA. That's it. That's, that's everything right there. It's very dark, but you can see it if you look carefully. Look for yourself at thechinafiles.com. Trudeau was making the Canadian Armed Forces give private military training to China on a Canadian Forces base in Ontario. And America said, whoa, you're, you're teaching them our secrets. And instead of Canada saying, you're, you're right, what, what are we thinking? The entire Trudeau government says, yeah, you stupid Americans, we're with China now. That's what this memo means. I mean, just ask our ambassador to China at the time, John McCallum. He's mentioned in these files here he is when he was asked about Canada-China relations and on what terms. Within 24 hours of arriving in China, I was invited to present my pre credentials to President Xi Jinping. And I conveyed to him a message from our Prime Minister that can be summarized in three words, more, more, more. Or in Mandarin, gungdua, gungdua, gungdua. You know, McCallum actually said Canada has more in common with China than with the United States. He said that. So paragraph four repeats that the winter survival training course is canceled, but Trudeau was worried it would hurt China's feelings. Let me read. Department of National Defense agreed that Global Affairs Canada would be consulted before this decision is communicated to China in order to shape messaging in advance and account for ongoing sensitivities in bilateral relations. Paragraph 5 is about the Navy parade in Qingdao, the one I was curious about, and it's threatening the military. They can't make the decision on their own. They have to confer with Trudeau. Paragraph 6 says that any changes between the Canada-People's Liberation Army relationship must be approved by Trudeau's China-loving bureaucrats and diplomats first. More, more, more. Yeah, more, more, more is what they want. Uh, the memo basically says the same thing five more times. But look at paragraph 15. Should Canada make significant reductions in its military engagement with China, China will likely read this as a retaliatory move related to the Meng Wanzhou case. No, not Meng Wanzhou, you immoral cads. Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, say their names. We wouldn't be retaliating against China because, of, because we lawfully arrested a billionaire oligarch the CFO of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, because she was accused of bank fraud. And she's living the high life in Vancouver, out and about in that lovely city. We wouldn't be retaliating for her. Imagine the person giving moral direction to our military, worried about her. No, we're not worried about her. We're worried about the two Canadians that were kidnapped by China. I'll keep reading. This is not least because China has used reductions in military engagement with the U.S. in recent years to signal its dissatisfaction with the U.S.-China trade relationship. Oh, so China can pout by, say, canceling port visits that U.S. Navy ships used to dock in Hong Kong. 
But Trudeau is telling our military we're not allowed to do that to express our displeasure. And just in case you missed it, they drafted a letter marked secret, CEO, which means Canadian eyes only, that said this, Canada does not want to be the partner that is reducing (laughs) normal bilateral interactions. Yeah, we're not, buddy. They're the ones who kidnapped our citizens. We're not the ones degrading the relationship. Um, And more threats that the army had better check with Trudeau diplomats before canceling or reducing anything like the Winter Warfare Training School. And then look at the last two pages in the whole file. The last two pages of the memo, Annex 2, it's called. It's marked unclassified because it's a list of engagements between the Canadian Armed Forces and China's People's Liberation Army. So how could it possibly be classified? We're literally inviting an enemy army to Canada to train with us. And yet they grayed out the first item. So you and I weren't meant to see this, but China knows all about it, of course. PLA members participate in winter survival training at CFB Petawawa, Canadian Forces Base Petawawa. Now, it's small. It's not hundreds of soldiers. It's six to eight personnel per country. But you only need one spy to learn our winter warfare secrets. We actually invite six to eight Chinese spies to take notes and to study and to learn everything. And they don't even have to do so secretly. We actually invited them to teach them on purpose our secrets to fighting in the cold. And that's not all. PLA in Canada, Military Education Commander's Dialogue. So we're teaching one-star and two-star Chinese generals how to properly train their soldiers. Why are we doing that? And look at the next page. PLA members attend the Canadian Security Studies Program at CFC Toronto. That's the Canadian Forces College. That's where we train our top men and women. Now we're training China's top men. uh, And we're inviting them right in there. A couple of senior colonels, it says. Um, They can't believe their luck. I mean, whether they're planting listening devices or just making notes of people to corrupt, why are we inviting the enemy into the place where we make our own soldiers? I'll read some more. There's a couple more at the Military College in Kingston, too. Do you see that? And I didn't even show you all the sessions that Canadian soldiers are sent to do in China to teach China, to train China, and to be spied on by China in China. Did you know we were doing any of this? Any of this? This memo is outrageous. It's outrageous for what it describes as normal, that we're giving one-on-one training sessions to our enemy's commanders. But even more so that the moment the military says, oh, we should probably cool things off. We should gear down. Well, you've got a full court press by Trudeau to not change a thing. That's the memo they're fighting over. That's a lot of what the rest of these documents show. I'll invite you to read them for yourself at thechinafiles.com. But look at this. The bureaucrats are not now fighting over this proposed memo, right? Which is basically Trudeau telling the army to put China first. So they're, they're battling over the wording of the memo. So a, tr- a Trudeau bureaucrat in charge of China policy named Nicola Payne writes, We are in the process of reviewing the draft and had a couple of questions, comments. And it's all grayed out because it blames America. I'm serious, look at point two. Our impression is that 
Department of National Defense, Canadian Armed Forces' reluctance to engage with the People's Liberation Army is not solely related to Miss Mung's arrest and the consular cases. That there are other reasons behind their interest in disengaging. From our perspective, it also perhaps to be related to a desire to be fully aligned with five eyes, particularly the United States, whose approach has shifted under the Trump administration. We recall, for example, back in December, Department of National Defense Canadian Armed Forces were keen to cancel the People Liberation Army's participation in the winter survival training following the request from the U.S. Department of Defense to do so. That's what DOD stands for. So they're blaming Trump. They're saying only an idiot would stop training China in how to fight in cold weather. This is a Trump thing, just ignore it. I'm serious, that, that's, a, that's the meaning of this. So another bureaucrat named Antoine Nouvet writes back saying, I'll get back to you on that whole Trump thing. Whether several Five Eyes countries have expressed concerns about knowledge transfer versus the U.S. only. So they're trying to figure out, do they have to pay attention or not? If it's just the dummies in the Trump administration who are worried about Canada teaching China our cold weather warfare secrets, Trudeau's fine with it. If the Brits or the Kiwis or the Aussies don't like it, maybe Trudeau will yield to them. That's exactly what this means. Now this goes back and forth amongst various bureaucrats. It's pretty clear. If some other country were objecting to Canada training the Chinese army, Canada would pay attention. But if it's just the U.S. that objects, Trudeau doesn't care about them. Look, I've only covered maybe 25% of all these files. I'm going to do more videos on completely different subjects in the days ahead. How Canada covers up China's spying on Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. How China uses the Belt and Road Initiative to undermine rival diplomatic blocs and to neuter human rights concerns. On how Canada's bureaucrats are afraid of offending Xi Jinping. Those are all important, but not as shocking to me as the revelation that Canada has been training Chinese troops, colonels, generals, risking our military secrets. And Trudeau's main concern is that we don't offend China by disengaging, and that we don't act if it's just the Americans who are worried. I've read and reread these memos again and again. What I don't see is a single vo voice fighting for Michael Spavor or Michael Kovrig. Not a single voice promoting Canadian values abroad, not even promoting Canadian interests. I see bureaucrats who see America as the enemy and China as the ally, who think it's fine to participate in Chinese propaganda exercises, whether it's the Naval Parade or the Wuhan military games. I actually didn't see a single national security secret in this whole mess, but I did see a lot of politics that Trudeau and his team probably want kept quiet. And what I saw is that memo putting our soldiers on a leash. It was drafted for signature by an, a man named Ian Sugart. He was the top bureaucrat at Foreign Affairs, and it was his job to put the military in its place. He's not there anymore because Trudeau just promoted him to be the top bureaucrat for the entire Liberal government, the chief of the Privy Council. He runs interference for Trudeau on every file now, whether it's on the We Charity fiasco or telling soldiers that they have to train their enemies. How do you feel about what I've shown you today? If you're still interested and want to read more, why not go over to 
thechinafiles.com. Read all the documents for yourself. I found it easier to read the gray parts when I actually printed it out on paper. I've invited other journalists to study this document too. I don't know how many will. Like Trudeau and Ian Sugart, the media party is just fine with China. It's our military that they don't like. And the only thing they dislike more than our military is America's military. Go to thechinafiles.com, see for yourself. And if you appreciate the work we're doing here at Rebel News, please chip in a bit on the crowdfunding button on that page. Unlike Trudeau's CBC, we don't get a dime in government money, which is probably the only reason we're able to tell you the news like this. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for watching. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, good night. Keep fighting for freedom.